So, Rebecca, it's been a while since you've been on the podcast, and I want to make this more of a regular thing. So hopefully we can make this a regular thing. Yeah, I feel like... We've gotten out of a rhythm. I know. Well, and the Delta variant kicked me in the high knee. Wait, you got it? No, I didn't get it. Oh. But I had to send my kid to high school in it, and yeah. there was an outbreak at his school. And right. That took a lot of brain space. Right. So you wanted to talk about apologies, Rebecca. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Well, so I went to, I think it was a two or three day training uh, with Dr. Bianca Lorano, who runs Anti-Up anti Trainings, which is a social justice model training platform. And um, I learned a lot and it made me really, and what we did was practice apologizing. Mm which is not easy. So I've got her. What was it like? What did, what did you do in the class? What well, you... we wrote out a lot of apologies, which I'm not going to read today. Okay. Too personal? <laughs> Too personal. And I didn't actually... Like apologies to, like to Beth or something? Or... No, I did a professional one. Like to, um, to, to a client or... To someone that, uh, so being an office manager, there's lots of ways that like you, you let the, some, someone into your space. It's like being a roommate, right? Yeah. You, you all like each other in the beginning and then you get into some stupid squabble. But and, you're the landlord, so. Right. Uh, so it was about that. And I'm not very good at that, that dynamic because I forget like, oh, I have power in this situation. And so I just start saying my opinion and then. You know, it's just all the stupid things you can fight over as a roommate. But yeah. Yeah. So what did you learn personally and professionally about apologies? Well, I'm going to read her three step model for doing it, because what we some of what we did was watch and or read a lot of uh, famous people apologizing for things that they've done and like which are almost always terrible. Right. And so I'm right, sorry that you felt that way. <laughs> so right now, this week, the Raiders coach resigned. Yeah. John Gruden, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so just kind of watching that whole thing happen is, you know, the timing for this is always perfect because we're definitely in a time where people were being called out. So step one is acknowledge specific actions, take responsibility, and just state what happened. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, say, say that again. Acknowledge specific actions. Yeah. What happened? I stepped on your toe. Right. And that's the main part of it is like you have to, as the apologizer, you have to establish the introductory paragraph to the apology. This is what I'm apologizing for, which is often left out of apologies. Right. Yeah. People will just say, I'm sorry. And it's like. Do you know what you're apologizing for? Right. <laughs> like, what What are you sorry for, right? Yeah. So you have to say, I am a terrible landlord because I was abusing my power. <laughs> sorry. just I was, I said something hurtful to you yesterday that I should never have said. And I, I said, D, 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 D. And so it's an establishment of this is what I recognize as the wrongdoing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then the next part is to acknowledge the impact and not your intent. Yeah. Which is really big. You see that a lot in yeah, white. But, you know, I, I didn't mean to, <laughs> I, I didn't mean to hurt your feet. I didn't, you know, I, that's not what I intended, you know. I mean, that part of the apology I think is fine, but it's more critical to acknowledge how it affected other people, right? Right. When I said that, it hurt your feelings, which I totally understand because it hurt your feelings and it, I could see it hurting a lot of people's feelings. Even though in your mind, as the apologizer, you're, you're like, that wouldn't have hurt my feelings, which is fine. You might be wrong about that because you're not the recipient of it and you're biased, but it's... <laughs> and you're biased. Right. It's important to acknowledge that the person's reactivity isn't, you know, pathological or something, you know, which is often inherent. You know, it's like... Look, I'm sorry for calling you an idiot yesterday, but you know, you you took it too hard. Like you gotta you gotta be able to take comp you gotta be able to take you know feedback sometimes. It's like these very inadequate apologies that 
the apologizer feels like it's an apology, but the apologizee does not feel apologized to. Right, because usually their experience is completely ignored yeah. or bulldozed. Like, right. This isn't the issue at hand. The issue at hand is X, Y, Z. And you even bringing this up is taking away what we really need to be doing when actually really the apology oftentimes is the only way to move things forward. Right. So the next thing is how to acknowledge how are people negatively impacted mm-hmm. instead of glossing everything over to acknowledge your feelings were hurt. Yeah. You didn't get to do what you wanted to do yesterday. Right. This workplace doesn't necessarily feel like a safe place anymore. Right. And then the third part is be clear about what you will do to change your behavior. Accountability. What did you learn? Right. Exactly. Yeah. That, and this is key, often left out, which is this is how I've thought about it. And this is why I did what I did. It's not an excuse, but here's how I got there, which is wrong. But because I figured it out, I know how to not repeat it. That's always the thing. I was looking at my phone instead of watching where I was going, and that's why I stepped on your foot. I'm not just, oh, I'm so sorry I stepped on your foot, you know, or or a more common one would be, I'm so sorry that I showed up late to pick you up. I could see how that would really bother you. End of end of story. If you're in a relationship with this person, you're like, and what are you going to do about it? What you, because you've done this multiple times. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Are you going to do something to minimize this, the chance of this happening in the future? Um, you're probably, you know, especially when it comes to repetitive relationship transgressions, you're not going to eliminate them, but you can reduce them or at least try. And often... I'll tell you personally, for me, when people are apologizing to me in this realm, I am not confident that they're going to be able to change it, but it feels better when they try to change it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like you care enough to try. Someone has a temper or someone is passive or someone is easily triggered and they hurt me as a result. If they can show that if they're like, you know, look, I'm sorry. I could see how it affected you. And I, you know, I'm trying to work on it. I don't know how successful I'm going to be, but I'm going to try to do this and that. In my head, I'm like, oh, it's probably not going to work. But, uh, you know, it, thanks for trying. <laughs> it means you care. You know, it means that you really do recognize how you affect other people, and me included, and how you can actually try to change things for the future. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I often talk about this research study that looked at the different elements of a study. And I like yours um, also because it, it condenses it down. But this, uh, these researchers, Kirchhoff et al. 20, or 2009, did a meta-analysis of different studies on the elements of an apology. But let me, and I'll go over them, but, and I often do because it sort of micro kind of breaks out what you were talking about. But What's the goal of an apology, Rebecca? I think it's that if you want to maintain a relationship yeah, with that person. Good. And what's the what's the sort of sub goal, I guess? What are you trying to accomplish in the in in the in the apology? Because I feel like that's important because I feel like a lot of times people are apologizing not for the right reasons. Right. I mean, I why are people apologizing? I'm so I'll, I'll just talk this through. I had a client Recently, something negatively went down at her work and her and she wasn't sure if she could work there anymore. And then her boss actually apologized and then things actually changed. And I asked my client the other week, has this ever happened to you before that somebody actually apologized for something and then followed through? And she's in her mid 30s. And she said, no, this has never happened happened to me before. And I was like, oh, this is how trust gets built. Right. And now you now your nervous system knows how this feels. Mm-hmm. If people actually show up. Right. Right. Trust that and justice. Right. And if you're trying to 
even if it's a short relationship, like someone you're sitting next to you on the bus or something, we have to coexist with other humans. And for that to go, for that to go smoothly, one justice has to be served, which means you have to acknowledge what you did wrong and say, you're going to try to change it. But also you have to build trust. You know, when we build trust, when people trust us to take care of our side of the fence, then things go a lot more smoothly. They don't have to yell at us. They can just be, they can just wait for you to apologize. What a wonderful world that would be, right? Imagine a world where you'd never have to complain. You'd never have to criticize. Someone would just say, oh, five minutes ago, I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. Just imagine that, right? And how relaxing and wonderful that would be, right? So we're trying to get there in our relationships and, it, it enhance, and it encourages other people to take responsibility because they trust you and they, you're leading by example. So, yeah, the, the goal of apologizing is to be fair and to build trust and to build goodwill and to build strength in bonding and attachment, safety in a relationship, even if it's with a boss, which often there needs to be a, a lot of that similar to a romantic relationship. And but a lot of people are apologizing for other goals, like what? Uh, money. <laughs> right. We are Facebook. We are sorry. Please give us more money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think people usually do it in the hopes that everything will just go away if yeah. they did it once. So one of the examples in here was the Kobe Bryant example um, when he sexually assaulted the woman in the hotel room. And it was interesting from age wise, because I was, I think I was the only person in the training that had been kind of an adult when it had actually gone down. And so I had a really different opinion of his apology letter where I was like, this is crap. Like yeah. he dragged his very young wife into making him look better. And everybody was like, Oh my God, I had no idea all these things happened. But if you read the letter kind of as Kobe, the superhero now, um, it was just interesting to see, like, having actually lived through it, the letter was really offensive to me. But people who didn't know the whole history were like, oh, I think he did a pretty good job. Right. Kobe really cleaned up his image after that effectively. I remember people hated him, especially in the non-NBA world, I suppose, that he, you know, similar to Mike Tyson when he sexually assaulted a number of women there it was like the whole section of people, I think rightfully so, just said, I'm done with that person. There's nothing they can do to redeem themselves. They're, they're you know, a rapist and they don't. Now, I don't know the full story about Kobe Bryant, but, but yeah, it, side note, isn't it interesting now that events we go to were the oldest people? You know, because we used to yeah. be, we, you and I used to be the young professors at, at the university. And now I, I frequently am like, like, Stacy and I will be at a restaurant and I'll just be looking around. I'll be like, we're the oldest people here. Mm -hmm. All the customers, all the workers, including the owner of this place, younger than me, <laughs> younger than us. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's just an interesting kind of thing. But, you know, the one place you can always depend on being still young is you go to a play. Oh, mm -hmm. you know, or a, I thought we were going to say bingo. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, or go grocery shopping midday. <laughs> okay. So the, the, they found the following elements, and I will often talk about this in my content because I feel like it's something that, because apologies, the need for an apology is frequent. Yeah. Work, romantic relationship, parenting as a child with your teacher. You know, there's so many situations where an apology is necessary and, I find that we have a very inadequate culture when it comes to discussing apologies. It's I'm guessing it's not talked about often in school, right? About like here's how you apologize to your friend on the playground about well, this it's and that. it's very uh, I want to say static. Like when my kid was a much younger, it was uh, okay. Now say three nice things about that person. And you'd see these kids and they'd be like, I like your shoes, I like your shirt, I like your hair. <laughs> and I was like, you're not teaching apologies. Like, right. you're teaching that child to perform on cue. Right. 
Um, and so what is really an apology, what is really connecting to somebody, I think is difficult and nuanced. And yeah. and there's a way in which we want children to perform, right? Say you're sorry. Right. Um, but we don't model it as adults. Right. So, of course, they don't know how to do it. Yeah, that's a tough one. You got a seven-year-old who pushed classmate down at the playground and you're like whoa you okay what's going on here hey you you know johnny you have to apologize um and johnny's like okay fine i'm sorry and it 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 shows something and i you know it's actually as i say this out loud it's almost like that's as far as we go with it and then that's the model of apologizing Mm -hmm. that people retain into adult life into public life Uh, you have politicians that will say I am sorry for doing that thing that bothered lots of people. Uh, I, you know, like I am here with my wife right, to show I'm still it's a, a good man. Right. I was. I have a mother and a daughter <laughs> and a wife and a cousin who is also <laughs> a woman, and therefore I understand that my words were just locker room talk and should not be said while there are recorders recordings me uh i will keep it to just with men you know and it's like (laughs) the seven-year-old going fine i'm sorry and instead of really what the just and mature way of apologizing which is uh to you know make it into a a 10 point list for these researchers. One is a statement of apology for one's transgression. As you were saying, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. Maybe the offense, this is what I did taking responsibility. It's my fault. You know, I'm not just saying I'm sorry. I I actually, the word, sorry implies that you're taking responsibility, but it often doesn't mean that. Could you imagine the politicians saying like, I understand I live in a white misogynist culture and I am the byproduct (laughs) of these things. Right. But, you know, like with the John Gruden thing, he said transphobic, uh, homophobic, racist things. And one, I'm like, and we're surprised. I I mean, of of, I'm assuming in a lot of these sports, you have white you know, men who have, shall we say, non-progressive ideas of, of in these areas, uh, we should expect them to educate themselves. They're working with black people. They're working with gay people. They're working with trans people. They, uh, but regardless, they should at least, I don't know, just try not to be like they're living in the middle ages or something. And so, um, uh, I, it's a lot to ask. I think, I think we should ask it and demand it and fire them if they don't. But for them in the moment to go from being that way, you know, John Gruden, since he was socialized into white male supremacy at the age of three, has been living that life in that in that echo chamber for this, and he has power and he yells at people and and. Uh, then he gets caught and then the next day he has to quote unquote apologize in that 12 hour period of time. He's going to, he's going to take a degree on, you know, women's studies and understand (laughs) all these things. Well, Right. If some lawyer just writes him a statement and he reads it and we watched him read it live. Um, Oddly, I had just been in that stadium in Las Vegas. When I was in Las Vegas, there was a tour of it and it's incredibly expensive and ornate and like really reminded me of everything that the NFL is which is a non-profit in this country and just like keeps all that money that they make so here's somebody making a gazillion dollars in a very stressful job but he's doing quite well for himself and I thought it was so interesting that he makes that same rote apology that we've heard a thousand times but this time he got fired or let go or choose and so is that well he resigned but you know he probably was told i either you resign or we're going to get rid of Mm -hmm. you there's we can't we can't hold you any you know you're 
a terrible human being <laughs> and you're bad for our business. Right. I mean, I, that's what I was going to say is like, have, has the times moved so far that they are now so, so concerned about black fans, gay fans and progressive fans turning away Yeah, that you would actually get fired, which is like, okay, that's a culture shift. That's really interesting. Yeah. The NFL, I mean, it's complicated and has still a lot of problems, but it has changed uh, as a result of Black Lives Matter, as a result of, um, what's his face? Oh, golly. Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, Colin Kaepernick. Um, and all the other supporters who were s- kneeling with him and the fans to the point where, I don't know if you notice this, but on every helmet there there's little phrases that say, mm-hmm. like, end racism or end mm-hmm. hate or um, these kinds of... Uh, um, public affirmations from the players in the NFL, uh, essentially standing with Colin Kaepernick at, the, at this point, and uh, which reflects the dominant view of the players and the audience, <laughs> uh, just not apparently some of the, uh, some of the coaches. But anyway, <clears throat> and as a side note to John Gruden, I always, I, before this, I liked him because to me he was a cartoon of a a-hole coach Mm. the way his facial expressions the way he talked i thought that he was behind the scenes like a nice guy but he put on this show of being a i don't know like a traditional football coach Mm -hmm. almost like a throwback to the 50s where they're always grumpy and yelling all the time and because you know we have pete carroll in seattle who is pom pete yeah is the nicest guy he you know he's high five and everyone chawing on his chew on his uh, chewing gum and 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 you know he's the he's the seattle progressive version of an nfl coach and then you have john gruden i i just always liked that i didn't know he was actually an Mm a-hole you know what i mean i I thought he would he, he i i thought that he would be in support of gay players truly but he would kind of have to try to act like he was a tough guy or something like, but he actually was an a-hole, which really kind of, um, it's shocking. It's just shocking. It it shouldn't shock. Right. Um, number four is attempt to explain the the offense, but don't try to explain it away. And this is important. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people will hack on people who try to do this. Like, you know, don't try to make excuses. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Don't excuse it. Don't say, well, I said that because you were a jerk to me yesterday. You know, that's that's an excuse. But to explain it shows that you've thought, you've given some, you've reflected. Hmm. I called you that name yesterday because I was being triggered by other people. That's not your fault. <laughs> but I was in a terrible mood yesterday, and this and this happened, and I'm to blame, and I'm going to try to work on it, and... I'm going to actually go to therapy to learn my triggers so that I won't be generally a jerk face, including to you. That's an an investigation, an evidence of an investigation into why you did it. For John Gruden, he could say something like, that would be sincere. He didn't say this, but he could say, if this was sincere for him, if this was true for him, I have uh, thought a lot recently about my attitudes and it i don't know why but no one or i um you know i'm trying to think what would be sincere from someone in that position i have thought about a lot of the things i've said and done and i truly at the time kind of knew it wasn't okay but didn't really look at it because i didn't have to because no one around me punished me for it they were secretly hurt by it you know which i realized but i now have started to look at some of these things and i'm still wrapping my mind around how i had these viewpoints and i'm still struggling with like how did how did i get there and how do i disentangle sort of my my opinions about things and those extremely horrible things that I used to think and still kind of do to, to, to tell you the truth. I'm still kind of, do you know, you know, and 
I came to it because, and this isn't an excuse, but you know, the people I grew up with and the people around me and I'm not excusing it. It was wrong. And I should have pushed back long ago. I mean, I had people in my life that said things and I just, I just blew past it. Cause I just, I don't know. I just felt like I didn't have to or something. I don't know. But you know, like a, something like that mm-hmm. from one of these guys, you, you know, it's funny. I, in watching his statement, I think he did say, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Yeah. Like, come on. <laughs> Which is, it's just really interesting. And I think it's really hard to acknowledge, you know, he's in a field that uses black bodies at an alarming and wears out black bodies at an alarming rate. Yeah. Um, so I, I, that piece is just really interesting that, you know, he can't own that he said something racist. Um, and that's what they always say. And it, right. and it illuminates this notion that a lot of privileged people have, which is, well, I'm not actively, you know, I didn't walk up to someone and say, you're fired because you're black. Hmm. Therefore, I'm not a racist. You know, I didn't walk up to a woman and assault her. So that means I'm not sexist. And it's this completely elementary idea of what racism and sexism is, right? Again, I kind of understand the ignorance because it's it takes a lot of learning and struggling to emerge. You know, we would have students that would come to us in the program with a ton of privilege and an awareness of that. And it would take uh, even though and they're on board with presumably wanting to change that and become more aware. And it would still be a struggle for years for some and some, some of them would graduate without having really uh, surmounted the the issue if you give me three hours of your time for 10 weeks i can help you undo your privilege right it will be painful right <laughs> you there will be days you don't like me yeah but we can undo these things and so it's interesting that like someone like that never says the coach would never say like i I, I'm getting my bias in this, and I'm going to move forward by doing a little work on this. He just says, "I'm not racist. Yeah, I love my players. You know, what's the whoops. problem? Right? Yeah. I'm so curious. I wish I could have been a fly in the wall of him learning that he'd lost his job. Yeah. What does that discussion look like? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's devastating to him. Uh, it was. He was mid-career in all likelihood. He probably had another 20 years ahead of him and could have and was actually this year, the Las Vegas Raiders are doing a lot better than they were before and could have gone to the playoffs. Maybe Mm -hmm. next year could have even done better, you know, like in a new town with new fan base. Very, You know, it's a very exciting time to be a coach at the center of all that and to just because no one will hire him from this. Hmm. Maybe he, uh, yeah, I can't even imagine working like in Europe or Canada or anything. Maybe he's an assistant, but you know. Anyway, so the number five is to convey emotions, the your emotions as the apologizer. Like I feel so bad, or I feel ashamed, or I feel scared that you hate me now. You know, like you have to show that you are affected by what you did and what this means. You know, that's another part of it. Number six is addressing the emotions of the offended party. Mm-hmm. So this must have hurt you. It clearly did. And it, I can imagine that you f- hate me now. You know, something acknowledging and validating. Um, <clears throat> number seven is admitting fault, which is something that they teased out. It's like, well, in case you didn't know, <laughs> apology means you have to say it's your fault, which isn't always there. Number eight is promising forbearance. Uh, this is the... I'm going to try to work on this. I'm going to try to not do this in the future. Um, number nine is offering reparation. So is there anything I can do to make up for it? Is there anything I can do to make this right? Um, and number 10 is requesting acceptance for the apology. Mm-hmm. You know, do you, is that, is that sufficient? You know, is that, do you accept my apology? They don't have to give it, of course, but at least you're, 
you're not just saying, hey, I apologize, moving on in life. You know, you're mm-hmm. like, what, did I get it? Did I, <laughs> is there anything, did I miss something in my apology here? So the, I evaluate on 90 Day Fiance when I do my reaction videos, because apologies are often a part of the show. And I've never seen someone get even close to everything on there. Right? So what would an apology on that show sound like? Well, it's often just, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. That's all they say. Like Big Ed is a real, real popular cast member, and he will often do, um, you know, I don't know, hurtful things to other people. And afterwards, he'll come to, and he'll he'll have the body language of apology, body language of taking responsibility, but he won't say anything that indicates he's taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. But he'll have a nice tone of voice, and he'll say, "I'm sorry, I'm I screwed up. I'm sorry, I screwed up." I'm so sorry. Do, do you accept my apology? I screwed up. I'm so sorry. You know, it's a lot of those words. Mm-hmm. And at no point is he saying, I know what I did to you. He mm-hmm. never says, I did this to you, which is wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I, I understand how you would feel in this situation. And at first, when I would see him apologize, I thought, oh, that's nice. We don't often see that because he would really have this, I'm the screw up. Mm-hmm. You did nothing wrong. <clears throat> I made a mistake. But rinse and repeated it over time with him. You start to wonder and you know, possibly really make the determination that he isn't really apologizing. Mm. He's just saying words to get people to stop not liking him. Mm-hmm. And at no point is he even contemplating, even going to a contemplative space of what did I do? It's only, oh, I noticed they're upset at me. I'm not even going to, because of my personality problem, I can't, I can't even ask the question, what did I do wrong? Because I have too much shame or something. So I'm just going to forge ahead, and I know that this will work. I just say, I'm sorry, I screwed up. Mm-hmm. And then the other person will go, oh, that's nice of you. People don't usually say that to me. And then it's back to the status quo and eventually hurt the person again, which would mm-hmm. happen over and over again. <laughs> And the fact that he would hurt in the same ways indicated that he never even took time to think about what he had done because he would continually hurt people in the same exact ways, (laughs) you know? So, um, yeah. So what else did you learn at at the train? Uh, so one thing that came up among the participants, which was really interesting, is that in this time, someone can come at you looking for an apology, but it quickly becomes clear that you can't apologize for the scope of the things that they're upset at. So can we, as the people asking for an apology, just be really clear about that the person we're asking it from can actually give it. Um, because right now there's so much that's coming to the surface to be upset about. Um, so just if you're going to ask someone for an apology, make sure it's something that's in their, their, their scope as opposing, you know, if they give an apology and you say, yeah, and that happened to me 20 times before you even did it for me. Well, that's something they can't apologize for. Yeah. So are you saying that uh, the training and you're you're saying that people will sometimes so there can be a situation where someone apologizes sufficiently but because the apologizee is distorted or traumatized or triggered or something it won't feel sufficient because they have a lot more things that they're dumping on the apologizer. Yeah. Yeah, as that some of some of this we need to narrow our scope and have that be okay. I can only apologize for my part. I can't apologize for what these other people did. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we're in a time where everyone's wounds are really, really <laughs> on the surface and open. Um and that, you know, if you can that's why the story with my client was so interesting for us to slow it down and realize, oh, she'd actually gotten a genuine apology and the person actually changed and made a promise and has actually stuck to it. Like 
but that person can't apologize for previous bosses that have been jerks or other people in the workplace that haven't done their part. Well, and the apologizee can be distorted, like, uh, you know, a, a clinical example that's common to our lives is a client believes that we did something horrible to them mm-hmm. when we know that we did not, or we are pretty sure that our take on the situation was we didn't do anything terrible. Like a cl- like I had a client early on in my career who really wanted to, she had borderline and really wanted to check in in between sessions because of the preoccupied attachment that she had. She was just, in a very anxious, desperate, lonely place in between our sessions. And we would, and I would always keep the frame of therapy and, you know, say it's one hour a week and, you know, we're going to do a lot of work in that hour, but that's all that, that's all that this is going to be. And she fell in love with me. She wanted to marry me. And, you know, so I was holding the frame, <laughs> you know, it's like, we're going to do a lot in this hour. We're We're going to do a lot of work and, it's never going to be anything more than that. You know, it's, there's not going to be any social contact or any, but she did convince me to, this is when I worked in an agency to call me in between just, you know, maybe once or twice during the week at the office. And she knew to call in between session times, you know, and she called and I was in the lobby in the busy mental health agency lobby and the receptionist said, hey, uh, your client's on the phone. And I was like, oh, I do not have time for this, but it could really be harmful to her if I don't take this call. So I, you know, so I calmed down, took the call behind the desk at the reception office and took a beat and just said, uh, hey, how's it going? Just by the way, I, I do. I only have like maybe two minutes because I, I have another client come. She's like, oh, OK, that's fine. And she checked in and I said, well, thanks, you know, for checking in and I'll see you on Monday or whatever. For the next two years, no joke, every other session, this instance Mm -hmm. came up as an example of how I completely wronged her Mm -hmm. and betrayed her and was a horrible therapist in that moment because my tone was bad or so. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even that I only took two minutes. It was I completely blew her off and didn't care about her feelings when it that was not the case. Um, I uh, really went above and beyond <laughs> to even pick up the phone and took a beat to say, okay, make sure you're in the right kind of mm-hmm. heart space as you listen. And <clears throat> so she was distorted, which is part of her condition. And that was fine. And I worked with it. I didn't, I didn't, misunderstand what what was happening for her in terms of her relational trauma triggering but but I'm not going to apologize for doing something I didn't do but how do you deal with that right I mean as a therapist you know it's a whole other story but but there are times when people are laying stuff on us that we didn't even do mm-hmm. um, like in public or something and what do we do in those situations well, so I went through one of those situations as a professor. Uh, students felt that I had so much power of what would happen to them after they graduated that this whole thing kind of brewed up. And it was really interesting to have to say, like, you might not like my style. I might be too gruff. But actually, everything that happens in your career after this is up to you. I don't hold any secret key to your job what, life. What were they accusing of? They were they there was a kind of myth that I could get people jobs after graduation and, and, and not get people jobs. And not get people my word would kind of make or break. Yeah. Which honestly, I could kind of see, not that that's true, but in the art therapy world, mm-hmm. you could ima- it's a, it's in Seattle, you could imagine it being a smaller more insular wor- world and given your prominence in the community i could see a student thinking that yeah but it was it was just really interesting to just have to say over and over again what happens next is up to you but why were they even bringing this up i'm not really sure <laughs> 
they were upset that you had power over that? They perceived that I had power. They perceived, yeah. I and mean, they perceived that they would get the wrong end of the stick of yes, that power? Yeah. Why would? Why did they think that? I have no idea. <laughs> um, but and they you, got real fixated on it. Yes, and real like, fixated. And what? But even if that's and true, actually, a meeting was called to confront me directly, and the only person that showed up was like, "I don't know why this meeting's been called, but I just wanted to come by and say hi." And I was like, "That is so sweet." So they, a meeting was called between students and you. Yes. And they didn't show. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that... I mean, what do you think happened there? I'm just curious. Do you, like, what, uh, what, what I, was the breakdown? I think that uh, people knew that I had friends who were supervisors. And they imagined that I... That we had, like, some secret cadre. But why would they think that you were not going to help them? Or were, at, at, at worst, going to... Like stand in there. Why did they think that you would stand in their way? Well, the comment that was made was that I re- it was really clear who my favorites were. Ah, they felt unfavorited. Yes, and I, you know me, like my face doesn't hide anything. I say what I need to say. Did you have favorites? I would say I had students that I <laughs> meshed with, yeah. and enjoyed more than others. Sure. I mean, also, you know, having coming from the southwest side of Chicago on both sides, there's a level of wit (laughs) being able to roll with the punches that I just kind of expect from people. And if that's not your culture, I have learned over time, I'm absolutely terrifying to some people. Mm. Um, I'm just too much. It's funny, I just got my chart read by a really great astrologist and she said that the fact that i have four planets in scorpio in the 12th house means that lots of people are going to have really intense opinions about me all the time i was like oh that's so interesting because that's really true (laughs) but i think you know so the students did it was frequent yes why was that that people had such intense opinions about me? Yeah, I mean, I mean, one factor you're saying is that you, your style of socializing is, I don't know if you would say blunt or something. I wouldn't call you blunt. I would... Matter you know, of fact? I guess. I don't know. I don't... I think of you as an extremely nice, accommodating person but, without a lot of edge, honestly. But I don't, you can take my sense of humor. I guess. And play with me in it. And in that exchange is where I have fun. And that not everybody's capable of that exchange. I see you as a way... I think I see you as a way softer, like, vulnerable person, than I, I'm guessing, than, this, than those students know you to be. Yeah. And which was, you know, I mean... At this time, too, like, I have a four-year-old who just broke his leg and is in, like, a wheelchair, and they're saying to me, you know, you're too much. And I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm doing the best I can. But, you know, women professors tend to get attacked, like, 90% more than men. Right. Um, we live in a town where you're supposed to be passive aggressive and not straightforward. Yeah. Uh, art therapy is a field that tends to attract very sensitive do-gooder white women. And I am lesbian and like don't play by a lot of the same rules that a lot of straight women play by. There's this thing about lesbians. You know a woman's a lesbian when you're walking down the street or you know it's a queer person because you look each other in the eye. And straight women tend to not do that. They won't look a strange woman in the eye. And so... Why? Because there's not safety between straight women to look at each other. Because there's there's so much more anxiety about appearance and competitivism and all that stuff. Mm. Whereas, I mean... it's a joke among queer women of like, you know, did you make eye contact? Yes, because you're speaking this secret coded language between each other that like, we are the same. Um, This is off track. But so, I mean, all I had all of these things stacked. Well, well explain me. it because I, I, I hear things along these lines from the art therapy professors and the mm-hmm. drama therapy professors that 
things are harder for mm-hmm. them than in the regular non-creative arts therapy programs. You know, I'm in the marriage and family therapy program, and 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 incidentally, I teach a lot of art and drama therapy students some because they have to take my classes, um, <laughs> but. Uh, but it's never like a majority anyway, but I'll hear things like that, that, uh, the students are, um, what's the word? What, what was the word you used for the difference? Uh, more sensitive, more sensitive. Um, and I, I've, I've wondered why that would be, you know, why would art therapy drama therapy students? Cause it's, it's not obvious to me as to why they would be more sensitive. Yeah, I mean, maybe they're artists and, you know, they're going to school for a whole nother year. And I think there's an added fear about their careers. Um, and will this, I mean, that was actually why I stopped teaching because there was such this fear of like people coming to me and saying like, will this work out for me? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> there's yeah. so many cofactors. Well, that, so this is just having worked alongside the art therapy department since its inception with Janice Oshino in the year 2000-ish or something, I'm mm-hmm. guessing. Because uh, Janice and I were both hired around the same time oh. in, in 97, I think, mm-hmm. 98. And so we were uh, both half Asian, half Japanese uh, instructors. And the new people, I remember like, oh, she's starting this like art therapy thing. That's kind of, that's kind of interesting, you know? Anyway, my impression is that a common scenario is you have because i you know i'll I'll take applicants and there will be people that art therapy drum therapy people who will be like they're they're artists or they're in drama primarily and they want to utilize those things that are dear to them and important to them in a therapeutic context um, but the way that the institutions are oriented, you're more of a th- clinician who happens to use art or mm-hmm. drama. And the uh, contradiction there is hard, I, I think, for some of the applicants. Because I think, I don't know if they're sold this idea when they apply or something, or they just they just made it up in their head. You know, like they're a drama therapy a student and they're just like, Oh my God, my career, it's just going to be all drama therapy mm-hmm. all the time. And it's like, well, maybe, but in all likelihood, the people that come to you and the people who hire you and people who actually pay you money, a lot of them aren't going to want to do drama therapy. Right. And I mean, you- I always say to, I always used to say to my students, if you can do it 10 hours a week, you're doing really well. Meaning that, the other 30 other hours 30 are, you're doing regular administrative therapy, you know, talk therapy, right. what your client needs. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the expressive arts field really idolizes what happened in the 70s and these kind of experiential art experience things can- that there used to be funding for that haven't existed in so long, but the students don't really conceptualize that because they're early in their career. So in art therapy, there's this model called the open studio, which I think there's like four or five that exist in the world now, um, where you're just, you're the artist sitting in the room, helping people facilitate with materials. Those really don't exist anymore, but students come in wanting to do that model. Right. And, That's what inspired them. Yes. And and again, they're, they primarily identify as an artist sometimes mm-hmm. who just happens to want to do therapy, mm-hmm. right? And then they bump up against the reality of the market or the culture, and the program kind of reflects that to some extent. And I would always say, like, hang on two or three years, and then you can do exactly what you want. Right. I'm now 20 years in, and I'm pretty much doing only what I want. What do you mean? I mean, in the sense of how much art therapy I do with how did, clients. How did you engineer that? Uh, this is really funny. I was interviewed by a guy who's writing his thesis in England on using single-panel comics in therapy. And he asked me the same question. And I said, well, you just have to build the world around you with people who love what you're doing. 
Including clients? Including clients. So clients you want your style that you yeah. that you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it doesn't then, always as, happen, but But as you get more clout and more um, I don't know, word of mouth and more longer term clients that stick with you, that jibe with you, you have more clients that fit with the kind of work that you want to do. And you have more gravitas to say like, hey, this is what we're gonna do and your clients will be like, Oh, that sounds like a good idea. So, Could novice therapists do that, but they don't know they can do that? I think so. I think it takes a long... There's The learning curve of being a therapist, there's so much at the beginning. I always tell people, like, your first year is so hard, and you start back out at the bottom. So no matter what kind of fancy dancer, super important engineer you were in your previous career... You walk into an agency as a first-year therapist, no one cares who you were before. Right. And that plummet is really hard for people and impacts a lot of people's ego. Plus, they're serving, you know, the work is really hard. Um, So, but I think especially, and actually art therapists are the worst, (laughs) at least music therapists and dance therapists and theater people know how to connect to each other. Art therapists, you tend to make art by yourself. Oh, really? And so your social skills, you know, you can be pretty fragile and take things, most things, really personally. And I know, you know, a lot of students did not want to hear that from me. Yeah. But, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think what I had to say was that horrible but i can remember some students in particular that were just devastated by things i would say to them like what like hey this paper was okay but i'm gonna move on and we're gonna focus on something else right now and they were like you know i still have needs about this paper and i was like you know yeah yeah i'll never forget i i've said this story before on the podcast i have a friend of mine who was a student of mine back in the day and years later, after we became friends, she told me a story of the first class she took from me. And I, it was midway through the quarter, and I'd assigned a paper for everyone to write. And I said, and you have to pick a, I think, essentially a relationship in your current family to, to analyze and systemically, whether it be your partner or your mom or someone. And there, have, there has to be some kind of a thesis. You can't just kind of generally write. You have to have some kind of idea you're trying to get across. And I learned from experience when I would give this assignment that some people would choose interesting relationships to analyze that would never work out in the end. They'd get halfway through the paper mm. and it would fizzle out because there wasn't enough material to write about. Mm-hmm. And there were various different reasons for that that I won't go into. And so I learned that I would have to approve of everyone's, not approve, but sort of coach people on choosing the best topic to write about so that they don't screw themselves over, not because I'm the arbiter of what is good to write about and what's bad. I'm just like, I'm looking out for you by advising you on a good sort of topic to write about. And so every time I taught the class, I would have everyone think about it, and then I would go around the room one by one and interview everyone and just be like, so what are you going to write about? And I would, the typical, you know, because we sit in those circles, and so they'd be sitting around the circle, and I would be crouching down. I'd be kneeling in front of the table on the other side of the table. You know, I would just kind of, in a very soft manner, I'm not, like, towering over them. And it's just a conversation between me and them. Like, Mm -hmm. no one else hears the conversation. I'm not singling them out. You know, it's very careful. And when I came to her... Uh, I said, what are you writing about? And I don't know what she said. She said something, and I was like, oh, I don't know if that's going to work out because of this and this. Again, the reason why I'm saying this isn't because I'm disapproving of their idea. I'm saying, if you write about this, I think you're going to run into these five walls, and you're going to get real frustrated with this topic. So, and But I wasn't saying it in that tone. I was saying, you know, maybe is there something else you can write about? Because I'm guessing that that one's not going to work for you. And, you know, she came up with something else, and I probably said, okay, well, maybe think about that and get back to me. She got up, went to the bathroom, and cried for like 10 minutes because of that interaction. Mm-hmm. And I look back, and I, when she told me about this, it was years ago, and so it was closer to when this had happened, and I just thought, what? <laughs> like, I mean, I didn't 
detect anything in the moment from her or from me that would constitute that much pain that she went through as a student, you know, and it illuminated or reminded me, and I've been through a lot of graduate school myself, of how much weight we put in our professors' observations of us and how triggering it can be and how how careful we have to be or how much therapy the students have to be in <laughs> you know at the time yeah and it really reminded me i mean antioch has some specifics i think because in the old model they weren't actually being therapists for quite a while that these papers would have so much meaning to them about their learning. Right. As opposed and their to, worth as a therapist. Right. As opposed to the internship. I mean, what I noticed when I was at Pratt was like the papers were no big deal in a way because I was actually being a therapist being tested from day one. Meaning and you're so, at your practicum from day one. Yeah. Whereas at Antioch, you're in these academic classes for a couple of years before you see your first client. Right. And when you start seeing your first client, that's when you start gaining the self-esteem of a therapist. And the papers that you write while you're at internship are just like, well, if I bomb this paper, it doesn't have any reflection on my the hard, good work I'm doing with my clients. Whereas, you know, at Antioch, it's like two years of, of pre-internship time where all your ego is in how your professors see your writing, which has you know, I'm just going to say it, not that much to do with your abilities and your talent as a right. therapist. Yeah. So people will come to me and say, you know, I still need to process this paper. And having been through the model that I had been through, I was just like, you know, it's really hard not to roll my eyes and be like, you know, this paper is a flash in the pan. Or I remember some students saying to me, oh, I can do that work. I wrote a paper on that. And I would say, you know, never say that to anyone else. <laughs> like... <laughs> That might fly in this tiny environment, but outside of here, the idea that writing a paper on something would prepare you to handle it clinically, not going to fly. Right. So some of it, I think, was that I was trained in such a different model. Um, yeah. And some of it... Well, you also mentioned something about, you know, the privileged uh, 30s, 40s age white woman... Uh, You're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> well, I, I'm just curious, uh, like, uh, if you want to comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> Can you be more specific? Well, you just mentioned it earlier. You know, you're just like, well, as a queer woman, uh, I would be teaching these straight white women and there would be a clash or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I would say... That a male teacher could say the same thing, and this did happen because there was one male professor, um, and people would gush over him and repeat it over and over. I could say the same thing and be told I was too gruff, too offensive, not handholdy enough. Not what? Handholdy. Oh. Um. So it, it was. You're a nasty woman. <laughs> I mean, and this is their internalized sexism. Like, yeah. this is women freaking out at me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, you know, I taught for eight years. I've been out of it as long as I was in it. Um, and right now, I'm so glad that I can teach doing a daily workshop and people get a lot out of it and then it's over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those long-term relationships that you have with your professors in graduate school, I mean, I still think of all those people. The remember, students and, or the colleagues or both? Or? Uh, I, I think about a lot of the students. I still think about my own professors. There was a very famous professor at Pratt named Arthur Robbins. He wrote a lot of famous books about art therapy, and he was super psychoanalytic, and I came in a radical feminist, and it was a, a hard fit between the two of us. And my last quarter, he gave me a C minus in the class. And I was like, okay, dude, <laughs> like, whatever. Because um, he didn't like you? He didn't it? like me, yeah. And Why I refused, didn't he like you? Because I refused to use a psychoanalytic model with 
children in poverty who didn't have attachments to their biological parents. Like, yeah. I was just like... This did, was he classic? Did he believe in penis envy and that kind of stuff? Yeah. He probably did. I remember the very first day of class, he was talking about his transference towards an Asian woman. And it was like, I could have barfed. Like, it was, you know, she's, she's so demure. I mean, he's just saying, like, the most racist things that you can imagine. And he had... He was using this as his counter-transference example. Like, he just had no concept at all <laughs> about how the modern world worked. But people really loved him, and, you know, I went on to have a really different career outside of that model. Mm. Well, uh, we rambled for a full hour. I'm impressed with us. Yeah. Uh, let's wrap it up there. Any final word, Rebecca, on uh, everything we talked about, including apologies? Um, I hope that people practice by giving an apology, hmm. by being able to give the apology that you want. You're more likely to get the apology that you want. Yeah. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because... We need you now more than ever. We need your positive energy on the planet. Hey, Deserving Listeners. As you all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy, and you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to betterhelp.com Kirk to get 10% off your first month today.